Imagine taking your generosity to the next level, impacting more lives and leaving a godly legacy for generations to come. Get ideas and strategies to do just that when you listen to these personal stories from high-level kingdom champions. The Kingdom Investor Podcast showcases business leaders who have moved from success to significance, sharing how they use worldly wealth for kingdom impact. Discover how they grew in generosity, impacted more lives, and built godly legacies. You'll find motivation, inspiration, and practical steps to grow as a kingdom investor. Hello, and welcome to the Kingdom Investor Podcast. This is your host, Daniel White. Thanks for joining us as we interview Michael Blue. In this episode, Michael shares about how it was growing up as the son of Ron Blue, how he made his faith his own, and what he learned about stewardship and generosity from God's Word. Check out Michael's book, Free to Follow, to learn more. And now, without further ado, let's get right into the show. Hello, Michael Blue. Welcome to the Kingdom Investor Podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Daniel. It's great to see you. Good to be with you today. Doing well. Great. I'm excited to hear uh, your story and just to discuss with you uh, about investing in God's kingdom. So would you maybe start out by sharing just a little bit about yourself and where you're coming to us from? Absolutely. So I live in Austin, Texas. I uh, have three boys and one wife of 22 years. And um, yeah, so I, I currently am kind of a, a dual or a bivocational uh, role. I, I work as an attorney, believe it or not, uh, real estate, corporate securities attorney. And then I also have a number of ministry projects. I'm on the teaching team at my church. Uh, I lead a fellowship program and have some other kind of ministry arms that I try to stay involved in. Wonderful. Okay. Is there any particular project that you would say that you're really passionate about right now or excited about? Yeah, you know, I, I, God's really put a burden on my heart recently for uh, for men. And uh, I think that the idea around it, and it's just still working it out, but um, giving men a place to, to really go after their faith, uh, to be serious about their faith, to pursue it with, with all that they have. I, I feel like too often, um, many men I come in, in contact with for one reason or another seem cut off from that pursuit, whether it's shame or fear or um, you know, other distractions and whatnot. So really have a burden to, to walk through men with, Hey, I want to be somebody who's, uh, who's, who's doing their best to really go deep with God and then to, to live that out into my family and into my, into my life. Absolutely. That's really exciting. Uh, that sounds like a really good, uh, focus. So would you pray for us before we get started? And then I'd love to dive in and, and hear your story. Absolutely. Uh, let's pray. God, you are good, uh, and we are grateful that you have given us an opportunity to gather today to explore uh, some challenging concepts, some challenging questions, but ultimately to explore what life looks like when we um, take you seriously at your word, when we actually do uh, follow you. We lay our lives down and, and follow you. And so, God, I pray that as we talk today that uh, Daniel and I might have a bigger picture of what it looks like to follow you and that those listening might as well, and that we can glorify you in, in our daily life. We love you and thank you for this chance. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. All right, Michael, would you share your story with us? Sure. Uh, so I, I was born uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, 
And uh, I grew up in a, in a Christian household, youngest of five children. Uh, my dad actually was, uh, when I was born, not long afterwards, wrote a book that became a pretty popular book amongst Christian personal finance aficionados, uh, a book called Master Your Money. It's probably in the early 80s that he wrote that, and it ended up selling a lot of books. So I grew up in a, in a house uh, really my whole life knowing nothing different, but uh, with a dad who spoke pretty regularly at conferences and um, who wrote some books and was, was you know, call him Christian famous for a little while at least, probably. Uh, a lot of people knew who he was. And so grew up kind of around that, you know, that ecosystem, if you will, the the uh, the James Dobson, the the people who kind of we've all heard of at this point that but that are pretty <laughs> are getting up there in age. Um, and so that that was kind of the, uh, the like I said, the ecosystem that I grew up in. Uh, I went off to college, went to the University of Texas. I uh, got married you know, kind of was working as an attorney. And and probably I would say that uh, sometime in my 30s came to a point where I said, do I actually believe this stuff? So, you know, here I am having lived it out for a very long time, um, you know, going to church, involved in the church, volunteering in the church, tithing, saving, kind of doing all the things I was supposed to do. Um, and I won't say that I wasn't saved until that point, but I've often wondered at what point, and I know that, that we have different stories of salvation and some people probably do have a moment in time, but for many of us, it's a journey of, you know, God calling and, and where we finally kind of come to the realization of, of uh, our sin and God's grace. Uh, but I went through a process where I really questioned my faith, questioned what I was doing and came out of that gratefully uh, with a strengthened faith. Uh, of who I was, but even even through that, uh, still was on a journey of of learning that I actually did have a testimony that was worth sharing. Uh, I, I tell the story sometimes that I was actually preaching at my church on John 16, which is the end of the farewell discourse. And uh, this is, you know, I've been preaching for quite a long time. I'd been to seminary, and as I was praying through the sermon and preparation, I, I pray begin before and after the, the text that I usually preach. And I was praying, and part of that's John 17. And uh, and John 17 is a high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, thank you, Lord, that I have not lost one whom you have given to me. Uh, and the passage I was preaching was this whole inter interplay with the disciples and Jesus, where Jesus said, you don't get it. And they were like, no, no, we get it now. And he's like, no, you really don't. Uh, you're going to need the one who's going to come after me. Um, and then he prays, God, thanks that I haven't lost one of them. And then they go, you know, abandon him. And so it just hit me like this weight of it really isn't me. Like, it's not what I do. Not that I'm the one who's figured it out I'm special. It's it's that that he has decided not to let me go and not lose me. And uh, and it was that place that I really did realize that the testimony of God's grace is um, overwhelming no matter who we are uh, and no matter what kind of family we grew up in. So that's kind of my story, I guess, of, of faith uh, over my life. Gotcha. And... You know, coming out of that background, what was that like? Can you maybe share a little bit more about like some of the things that you did and learned, and then when you did kind of uh, maybe take ownership of like, okay, is this really what I believe? What did that look like? Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing I, I, um, I really took hold of growing up kind of in that environment, uh, I get, I developed a real fear of fame and being well-known. Uh, I had seen it 
from the other side a lot from from people and i saw how um how damaging it it really could be on people's lives and uh, into their families and and things like that and so there there was this really healthy uh and unhealthy in some ways fear of uh, of being known even um and so i i ran from ministry for a long time uh, not that i was going to be well known but just just questioning my own motives of being involved in ministry was it that i saw ministry as uh what my dad did you know speaking at promise keepers in front of 80,000 people at Cowboy Stadium or something like that. Is that like, is that a picture of ministry or is that some sort of a, an odd time frame, a time in our uh, Christian history? So uh, I, I grew up with that healthy and that kind of drove a lot of my decisions, I think early on, good or bad, uh, but kind of growing out of coming out of, of my crisis of faith and, and all of that and developing my own faith uh, I really, where it started to grow was when I, when I became hungry to, to be with God and to know God. And so it, it ceased to be about um, what I could produce, uh, what people could see about me, but, it, but it, it, it grew into how was I relating to God on a daily basis? And so that began to grow in not just a quiet time where I was reading through a Bible program, if you will, but a, a time with the Lord where I was meditating on his word and prayer when I was beginning to to engage in some of the spiritual disciplines that we hear about, but don't practice silent solitude, um, things like that, that really fasting uh, hadn't done that opened up intimacy. Uh, it wasn't the, the practice that was important. It was really the, the place I was, the space I was allowing in my life to just be with God. Uh, and so that's really when, when my, I would say my, I began to um, see a kind of a change in, in my perspective of, of wanting now other people to know and maybe being okay to go into ministry because I, I still wrestle with pride and wrestle with those ideas. But I think that God's bigger in my head than myself, way bigger uh, at this point, rather than uh, perhaps being somewhat equal. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about your perspective on money and how that has changed uh, kind of over the course of your life? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I started knowing about the, you know, quote, biblical principles of money. And so my my interaction with that was largely, these are the things you're supposed to do. Uh, if you do these things, you know, your money problems are going to go away and, you know, you can kind of live the rest of your life. And and to some extent, there's truth behind that, right? There's there's certain way, if you spend less money than you make, if you avoid debt, if you, you know, if you do these things and are economy, you're, you're probably going to be okay. Now, that's not true in every part of the world uh, or in every time in the world, but where we live, th those are very true, true things. And so it started really as, um, as that understanding of money. But as I, uh, I have had the opportunity to teach a seminary class called the a Theology of Money and Possessions, and, and through that teaching was when I really began to open up the that the Bible is witness on money is about so much more than principles. Uh, and when we, when we, you know, kind of just push it down to principles in many ways, it, it takes it away from the depth of scripture. And, and so my understanding of money is that it's complicated, but it draws me closer into a relationship with God. And here's just an example of what I mean by that. If, 
if you take a proverb that says, go to the ant, a sluggard, consider her ways, you know, and talks about how the ant stores for the next winter, right? And so in Proverbs, we're told, you know, look at the ant. Well, Proverbs also tells us, do not toil to acquire wealth, and so doing many have been led astray. You know, Jesus also warns uh, about kind of the dangers of wealth, and you can't serve God and money. You know, likewise, Paul warns about it, James, in 1 John. And, and so we have, okay, so the ant is wise, but also I got to, you know, be careful about it, toiling to acquire wealth. And, you know, there's dangers and riches. And so my understanding of saving isn't just look at the ant. It's look at the ant, but consider these other things that Scripture teaches us about money and its dangers and always hold those things together in intention. Uh, so that I don't become like the man who builds bigger barns that Jesus warns about, and I'm only considering the ant. Uh, and so I would say my understanding of the Bible and money is that it's complicated and it changes in my life. But if I'm approaching it that way, it does require me to be with God in his word, to wrestle with some of these tensions that I'm going to experience in my life, and then to, to take some steps of faith to trust him that he actually will do the things he says in Scripture. So do you have any examples from your own life, uh, personal examples of how you have been obedient in following God in what he says in his word about money? You know, this is always a complicated topic because many Christians don't talk about generosity. Uh, and I actually believe that we need to tell stories, but that doesn't make it comfortable because, you know, we look at <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount and and Jesus instructs us not, you know, not to let our left and right hand know these things. But he also earlier in the Sermon on the Mount does say, um, you know, do your good works before men so that, or, you know, effectively let, let people see your good works so they may give glory to God. All right, in chapter five. So again, there's tension in, in all of these things of, of intention probably is, is where a lot of that tension comes in from. Um, but, you know, we have in our lives, we um, probably one of the bigger um, decisions that we made as far as generosity came after a trip that we took, uh, my wife and I, to, uh, to East Africa. And so we went with an organization and spent some time visiting with them and, and seeing what they did. And they did things from red light district rescue uh, from women in prostitution and had kind of training programs for them uh, after they came out. They had feeding programs out in the rural parts of the country uh, where literally, I mean, you know, you've seen the pictures on TV and you go see these people, some of these people who walk miles and miles just to try to get a little bit of food because their child is, is on death's doorstep. And you go into some of these homes, uh, you know, sticks and tarps and things like that. And they have like, literally there was one that had a half eaten ear of corn. Um, and that was it. And it was a mom and, and three children. And so you, you know, you're kind of overwhelmed and don't exactly know how to take it in. Uh, but through that, as we were coming home, I felt like God kept asking me this question of why do you keep holding on to something? Why do you keep holding on to so much for a time that is uncertain, meaning retirement and future, when the, the need that you see right before you is so certain? Uh, and so we kind of wrestled through, what does that mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Why, what am I holding on to in, in this? And so my wife and I wrestled for a good year on what to do uh, with that. And so ultimately, 
we felt like God was was leading us to just um, to liquidate our retirement uh, and to use our savings to help build a hospital in that area. Uh, and so that was a, a obviously a pretty big decision of faith to to walk through that. I'm you know forty years old, thirty nine years old, something like that, with three kids. And um, but what we've seen through that is we've seen kind of a release of a lot of fear that surrounded money in our life. You know, that's kind of weird to say, cause I have much less than I used to have and much less for the future. Certainly um, stock market turns don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, downturns in the market. Don't, don't bother me that much because uh, that's, that's not, uh, I don't, I don't have much there. Um, so it, it's, it, but it's also kind of opened up uh, a lot of opportunities with our kids um, to have conversations, a lot of really cool things to watch what God did with that hospital um, that was far beyond anything that we could imagine in terms of uh, what our gift had anything to do with. Um, and so it's really been faith building, uh, but it's also been a place where we realized that that was a point in time when we did that. And it's been, you know, six years probably since we did that. And we've, we still have to kind of wrestle with, okay, what do we do now with what's come in, what's what we've made? And um, so it's a continual journey. That, so, wow. First of all, that's incredible. Uh, and, and thank you for sharing. I know there is that tension there. Uh, but maybe thinking, thinking about that, what were maybe some of the hardest parts of doing that? And then also part B, what were some of the greatest joys of doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the hardest things were, were gaining unity, uh, between my, my wife and I, um, you know, there's this picture she kept bringing up of not wanting to be the, the widow shuffling down the street, uh, carrying her, you know, bags. If I, you know, if she was, she was widowed and that's a legitimate fear. Well, I should it's probably not a realistic fear, but it's a legitimate fear. I mean, I, I I'm fully convinced in scripture and as we're invo- involved in churches and, and whatnot, as, as church members and the church I go, we go to would care for her if that were the case. Right. Uh, and so that being in community like that, there's, there's a, you know, yes, God. And that's how God, I think, fulfills his promises is through community that we have through his community. Um, but that was hard. It was hard to gain, gain that unity. Uh, over time. And it just, it was a lot of conversation, a lot of prayer, uh, talking to mentors and, uh, and patience on, on both of, both of our parts, I think. Um, you know, there's some logistic challenges with it because of taxes and, uh, and giving and, you know, all of that, just kind of the day, day to day type of stuff that was, uh, was hard that, you know, there's, there's also then some strange benefits that we, we didn't anticipate or see like, um, you know, child tax credits uh, and things like that, and um, and even in colleges, as our ch- as our children are going to college now, um, you know, there there's some benefits there. Uh, but really, from a faith standpoint, um, it, it really feels like a loaves and fishes type of a deal. Uh, like we, in our minds, when we came came to this organization, we thought we were going to rehabilitate a six room. Uh, rehabilitation center that was going to be for mothers and their children coming out of the hospital to spend a month to recuperate, to gain the strength, to go back home after uh, they were dealing with malnutrition. 
that didn't work out. And so they had this other piece of property that they were going to build a hospital, but the cost was like four times the cost of what, what it was. And so we couldn't do it. So we had to go and go to our friends and go to different people and, and raise money. And, and people came out of the woodworks that we didn't know and, and gave. And then turns out that went from a one-story hospital to a three-story hospital to now a two-building three-story hospital serving uh, Southern Ethiopia that, you know, at this point, we have a very small part as far as the financial backing of that hospital goes. And so just to see that God took our little idea of a small rehabilitation center and turned it into something where people are being uh, given the gospel, uh, they're being given medical treatment for some extremely preventable, but some extremely deadly diseases. Um, uh, and so we, we've really seen that our faith grow in that. And then watching our kids um, learn from that and faith has, has really been a, uh, a huge component of it. How have you maybe share some other ways that you have seen uh, God use that in, in your journey of sanctification and, and growing to be more like Christ? You know, for, for me, I think at the start of it, it was, it was one of these things I thought, okay, once, once I do this, you know, once we do this, it's, you know, that's a big deal or that's a big step. And it's uh, quickly, quickly realized that it's a step and it's a small step of faith and, and whether, and it still feels, um, I don't want to discourage people, but it can still feel rather insignificant in the whole faith process. And, and I, and I still feel like, oh man, I, I just need to trust God. And there's, there's a lot of things in our lives that we need to trust God in. And so it, it was, as far as a step in sanctification, it was just, it was another step. Um, I love Jim Elliott's quote talking about pushing back the boundaries of our faith one more step. So we don't go from little faith to, you know, the faith of a George Mueller or the faith of a C.T. Studd or, or Jim Elliott or some of these other people. We we grow in our faith and sanctification. And so, and I think oftentimes as we make steps, God gives us what feel like bigger challenges the next time. Um, and you're like, God, didn't I, didn't I prove my faith? But it's not about proving faith, right? That's not, that's not the goal at all. It's about proving faithful or being faithful. Uh, just in whatever comes into our hands in that next moment. And so I think I've realized this was preparation for something in the future, perhaps that we haven't seen yet, um, but it's all a part of our faith journey and our faith process. Um, and I've also found that God to be very, very gentle uh, in all of this. Uh, we have failed so many times in being obedient. And, uh, and I feel like he continues to give us opportunities to obey. Uh, and so it's, like if I've missed one, it's not like that was my last chance. So I find that to be very encouraging. So I think one of the common questions that would come up when doing something like this is like, what's the, maybe people would ask like, what's the balance between like being a good steward of money and, and obeying God in like what he's calling us to. Like, I don't know. There's just like, you know, what's responsible as like a provider for your family versus like what's, can you talk maybe to that kind of question? I think I've kind of grown to this opinion that I think we use stewardship a lot of times to excuse uh, or to justify, I should say, fear or control 
um, or things like that. So we say, well, I just want to be a good steward of X, Y, or Z, meaning I don't want to give it up or I don't want to give control of it because I'm the best person to handle it. Right. And so first of all, that's, that's something that I've had to break in my own life. And I call it the tyranny of stewardship. Even I think a lot of really well-intentioned things, even the parable of talent, someone's like, well, I just want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. I better, you know, <laughs> double or whatever my, whatever I've been given or get the most out of everything I've been given. And I actually think that's a pretty, um, I, I think that's a misreading of the parable. Uh, and I actually think it puts us in a, in a place that, that isn't intended and it, and it ends up being a works-based salvation instead of a grace-based salvation in that. Uh, so, so first of all, I have to kind of break, break through and ask, am I actually trying to be a good steward managing God's resources or, or am I just trying to control all of it and not lose it? Uh, so that's the first thing. And then the other, another thing you, you mentioned the word providing for my family, which 100% agree that God calls us to care for our families. Uh, a mentor of mine, a guy named Gary Hogue challenged me and said one time, he said, I, he said, there's nowhere in scripture that provider is referenced as anybody, but God. He said, so God provides for you so that you can care for your family. Now people will point me to first Timothy five, eight, and we can go into that discussion where it says, if anyone does not you know, in the ESV, at least provide for his own household. He's worse than an unbeliever. You know, that's word for provide is really to take thought of and to care for, but it's the household, his own household is really speaking about widows. Um, and so, you know, first, you know, I think the verse gets taken out of context, but the next part of that is if we look about provision in scripture, Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. Uh, Paul tells us, with food and clothing, he can be content. And so I think we've taken provision oftentimes way too far as far as what is our responsibility for our family. Um, God is provider. And so I'm, I have to manage what he gives to me, not foolishly or wastefully and throw it away. But I, I do think if I am modeling generosity and care for my brothers and sisters and care for the persecuted and the poor among my family members, um, and with my kids, that the responsibility doesn't extend well beyond the grave, if you will, for me to provide for them, um, is what I've come to the conclusion. That doesn't mean life insurance is wrong or bad or anything like that, and there's not reason to have it at times, but it does mean that that's not a scriptural command for me to have, and I am, am worse than an unbeliever if I fail to, quote, provide for my family in that way. Uh, this is a really long and rambling answer, so I apologize, but I would say uh, that the, the tension between caring for my family, being a good steward and giving, I think stewardship should encompass me being generous with what I have and the care that I provide for my family. So it all kind of comes in under one thing, and if and responsibility is as much from the spiritual state of my children and my family as it is their, quote, material uh, and so if, if my hoarding, my lifestyle I live, the things that I put them around in contact with make it harder for them to trust God and to follow God, then I'm not being a good steward of my resources by keeping them and, and putting them in that situation. I'm not, quote, being responsible with them. I'm actually just following a, a, a worldly pattern and, and giving it, making it really hard for them to do anything but follow me in the same. Uh, and so I think it's it's I have to really, really be mindful of how am I using my money in a way to 
stir the hearts of my children, both spiritually and and to make sure they're fed and clothed and, and protected to the extent I'm I'm able. Yeah, I think that over the last several years, I've really because you know, in our culture, it is instilled within us that we are as fathers, we are the provider for our family. And and I think you're right, like a lot of it comes down to like, okay, well, I've got to be in control. It's all on me. It's I've got to do it because no one else will. To and I guess over the over the last several years, I've really learned to depend on God and know that He is the ultimate provider, as He says in Scripture. And and that I'm I'm dependent on him and then I can care for my family from that provision. And so it's it's a difficult transition. It's for sure it's a difficult transition. And because I think you're you're it almost feels like you're giving up. I mean, you are giving up control, you're giving up, you know, power, you're giving up like security or a sense of security, maybe in 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 saying okay instead of trusting in my own abilities or trusting in this uh you know financial uh savings or retirement plan or whatever it is job even i'm going to trust in god and and live that way and obey him instead of kind of building my own system to trust and rely on does that does that make sense i'm just trying to it's put into words what I've kind of felt and and learned through the last few years. No, I think you're exactly right. And, and one thing when I, I, told, I mentioned teaching seminary class on this topic that struck me the very first time I, I saw it was how integral community is throughout Scripture in this journey. So if you if you think about even the Old Testament law, and all of the all of the things that you're supposed to do with with what you have, right? The gleaning rights, the years of jubilee, the uh, you know the this every seven years where, where things are to return, and and all of all of these things, you know, if I it effectively is look if if I have more than I need, part of my responsibility is to leave that for those who don't, and to care for them. But we're all in a community together, so there's this push pull of I'm going to help you while you're in need. And the goal is to return you to, to health, if you will, or to your, your land every seven years or (laughs) every 49 years so that you can kind of restart and we can all kind of live together. And so I, it's really hard in our society because it is such an individualistic society. And um, even in our churches, we're, 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 we're so isolated that it almost feels like, man, I wish I could do this. But I'd be the only one. And so if, if a community is supposed to care for my family when I die, where is it? <laughs> like, who's going to do that? And so uh, it's, you know, in some ways, it's really terrifying to walk in into those things um, because our culture functions so differently than really what we're called to function as a culture, um, which is why we, you know, through our churches, through uh, where we live, we, we really have to work hard to cultivate these relationships and caring. And I actually think as 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 hard a time as the local church gets, I think that the local church does a pretty good job of caring for its own members pretty well. 
Uh, I'd say if you looked at most churches, if there was a hurting, sick, a struggling person in their midst uh, who is, you know, kind of a part of the body, they tend to be taken care of as long as they don't hide. Yeah. And I think, I guess, you know, being in community and having God provide through different members of the community helps us to really realize that it's coming from God instead of from ourselves or from somebody else. So I think that's a, and of course, you know, it, it grows our uh, need and desire for community too, uh, to live in community. So you also wrote a book called Free to Follow, correct? Correct. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the process leading up to that and why you wrote the book and then maybe go into a little bit about what the book is, is about? Yeah. So, I mean, it, the, the book actually kind of really did arise out of, again, that seminary class. So I, I was so struck by the themes that were arising as I was teaching. I felt like a broken record. It was the first time I taught it was a one week intensive class. So we, we were together for five straight days, eight hours a day. And so, you know, you, you get all of your lecture in and so you can really feel like, man, I am saying the same thing over and over, but it wasn't because I just had done a poor job of outlining. It was because that was what scripture, because we literally walked from Genesis to Revelation. And so afterwards I came home and I just began to journal about 30 minutes a day or so um, thoughts and what was in my head and trying to kind of get it out and work out what I had had been through. And so there, as I finished, I kind of typed it up and organized and um, collected quotes that I, I had had. And I ended up, you know, with about half a book of just material, meaning, you know, 25,000 words or something like that. And so, and they kind of went together. So I, I began to just walk through the process of trying to put it in into a form that made sense. Um, and so that, that was really where the book began and where, where it stemmed from. Uh, but so ultimately the, the, the book is a lot about my, my journey in this and the, the subtitle uh, is called discover the riches of a surrendered life. And so it's kind of a plan word with money. And I, you know, I've had someone say, I really thought that was a prosperity gospel book until I read it. I said, well, good. Um, probably <laughs> Cause it's not, but what it is, is, is it, it's, it's a, it's a call to look a little bit harder at, at our preconceived notions with money. Uh, a call to say, what does scripture actually say about money and, and not fall prone. And, and we're all dangerous we're all prone to this is fall prone to grabbing just a verse and making a theology based on that on both sides side of, you know, call it asceticism or prosperity. Like both sides can have, can have a problem with it. Um, so take a, take a look at what, what scripture says and how our culture shapes that. But then ultimately it's a call to uh, be one that's willing to say, God, if, if anything gets in the way of my relationship with you, I want to be ready to get rid of it. Uh, which is ultimately, I think, Jesus's call to all of us is is when when things are ha, hold such a place in your life that it cuts off our relationship. It gets between us and our relationship. Then it needs to go, um, or it needs to change. Right. So it either needs to be modified. Uh, so you know, because that could happen with my kids. That could happen with my wife. And I'm not suggesting we get rid of our kids or wives if they get in the way. But it, I'm probably not relating properly to them 
when I put them between myself and God. So I need to either modify it or get rid of it when it gets there. And so that's ultimately what the call is, is uh, we want to be people who are hungry uh, to know God above all else. So you mentioned at the beginning, kind of you are on a mission uh, to minister to men and help them go after their faith in a, in a big way. Can you explain that a little bit and then also share maybe your vision for what that would look like in the future? Yeah. So I, you know, I've, I don't know, over the last 10 or 12 years have pretty regularly been involved with, uh, with groups of men, small groups of men kind of through my church and, and what I've, and other places, but what I've discovered is that, um, I mean, a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible and who who have very, very good intentions of, of living a godly life, and they desire to raise a Christian family. But very few people I meet are very hungry to spend time with God. Um, they know a lot about God, and this is my story too. They know a lot about God, but I would say that most don't have a very intimate relationship with God. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, I, I think it's Dallas Willard talks about how uh, he he was surprised as he engaged in the spiritual practices, how much it demanded of him, um, but how worth it it was to rearrange his life, if you will, to make it make it work, right? To actually move into it. So this the process is to say, hey, I want to we're going to get together and be willing to kind of commit a pretty good amount of our our days and time to pursuing God. And, and we've got to try to avoid making this into um, checking the box. And that that's the challenge with any, anything like this. But it's also, if I never give God space, if I were to go to my wife and say, all right, you got 15 minutes every morning, me and you, we're together. And that's it. Like, yeah, we're going to have some conversations, but we're not going to develop much depth in that. But if I say, hey, let's go spend a weekend together. And we just are together. If I say, hey, you know, whatever, throughout the day, if I'm continually coming to you and having a conversation with you, now that's a different relationship. Uh, and so it's it's getting together in accountability and vulnerability um, and trying to trying to say, how do we pursue God like this together? Uh, and so it'll encourage things from, you know, spending time with God in morning meditation and prayer and, you know, silence and solitude and fasting and, and times getting away of confession. With one another, I think that's a, an area of uh, for men that we really, really need. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt that I think we experience as men, and uh, and probably rightfully so in in some places, but also wrongfully so in, in a lot of places. And so, a place to be open, but ultimately, it's a place where where we want to encounter God regularly, but then move out from there and engage with with others just along the path as we go um, after that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really, I think you're right. That's very needed. So I appreciate that you're doing that. All right. My next, next question is a little more fun and, and you can kind of take this different directions, but what is the greatest investment that you've ever made? <laughs> the greatest investment I've ever made. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll have to probably go with, um, with the time spending with my my boys, um, and just life. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of fun times. I've, 
taken each two my two oldest might do the next one this summer but we've we go climb a mountain when they turn 13 so when they turn 12 i give them a bible and challenge them to read read through it in a year uh and so we it usually takes longer than a year <laughs> but so far they've both the two oldest have completed it and thirds on the way uh and then we go climb climb a mountain together and then we kind of begin a time together where hopefully they can grow into their own faith um, so I would say the investment of time with my children is probably the greatest investment I have made and, and will continue to make God willing. All right. And then what is a failure that you've made in your life that you want us to learn from, or maybe that you've learned a lot from? Yeah. So really early in this journey, I say early when I, I had been practicing law probably for uh, about seven years. Uh, and felt really a tug to to go do you know quote something with uh, with my law degree that was meaningful rather than just helping a bunch of rich people make more money uh, or protect their money. And so I, I began. I was familiar with an organization called International Justice Mission, uh, and they they deal with um, human trafficking and human slavery and much of the developing world. And um, and so I applied to work with them uh, in one of their offices in Uganda. Ultimately, they offered me a, a fellowship position in Nairobi, uh, Kenya. So we had sold our house as a family. My kids, I think, were um, eight, six, and uh, three, or seven, five, and two, or something like that. And so we kind of miraculously, if you will, guys could really see God's hand in selling our house. Um, like, you know, the day of walking to school, my wife mentioned it to somebody, and it was under contract the next morning, uh, kind of a deal. <laughs> and in a not great market. So it was a, one thing after another, God had really opened doors for us to go as a family and live in Nairobi and work for international justice mission. Uh, so, but as we were kind of preparing and planning all the logistics to go, it just became overwhelming. Uh, and I ended up backing out of the opportunity. Uh, and so we ended up, we had sold our house. We had to buy another house. I quit my job at the law firm and, uh, and really began to ask God, what's next. But it, it very clearly in that time, both my wife and I were convicted that God had led us to do this. He had opened the doors for us to do this. He was making every way for this to do this. And we had just flat not trusted him. Um, and so it was, um, yeah, uh, it's kind of, <laughs> it's shaped a whole lot of what we've done since of, uh, of trying to say yes more often than we, we say no, but it, that would, I would say as far as, especially spiritually, that's, one of our biggest regrets and, and failures that, that we've had. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That is, that's really insightful uh, for us. All right. So before we enter the mentor minute, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? You know, I, I think that as I've, you know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit before this call and, and on this call and what I hear and, and people who come on your podcast and heart, you know, the wrestle I think that all of us have is trust in God. Uh, we were even talking about it before we came on onto the podcast. And I would just encourage readers uh, that you don't figure it out until you start living it out. And that doesn't mean until you start doing it perfectly, because I think both of us will testify we don't do it perfectly. And we won't do it perfectly um, this side of, of heaven. And so we're, we are all wrestling with it but that 
too often means I think the overwhelming nature of, of trying to have faith, having trust feels like, well, I've got to sell everything I have and I've got to move to some distant part of the world in order to do it. Uh, and that's not always the case. Um, so I would just encourage people to begin saying yes when you feel God calling you to do things that may make you like, oh, that, that's uncomfortable. Or that's weird. And, and just watch how he uses it to grow your faith and to encourage you the next time you, you have an opportunity to, to walk into those things. Because it's a lot of fun when you do say yes, because God always is there bringing joy, um, even when it can be kind of, kind of challenging to go through it. Yeah, that's good. All right. Now the mentor minute questions, who is the most influential person that you know, and how have they impacted you? So I'd say the most influential person I, I know would be Gary Hogue. I mentioned him earlier. Um, he, he's a just been a mentor in, in my life of somebody who has uh, taken it upon himself, or not taken it upon himself, has 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 lived out this faith and trust in God um, as far as kind of moving into ministry and faith uh, and watching how he has lived and kept no more than what he calls a minor. Uh, which is, you know, three months wages and trust God to provide the rest and watching how God provided through his wife's breast cancer and his kids' faith growing through all of that. And uh, so he, he's really has impacted me as somebody who uh, who lives lives out of this message right now. Uh, and you can see God's faithfulness in his life. Do you have any books or podcasts that you'd recommend for us? You know, the, the book that probably shocked me most that I, that I read was uh, as a book called True Discipleship by William McDonald. Um, it's an older book, one that you probably haven't heard of, but it, it's pretty in your face. So I would say, you know, be ready for it. Um, you know, you kind of have to be able to read with some discernment and wisdom in it. But it's, it's a guy who takes what he believes really, really seriously um, in these areas. So it'll challenge you if you're, if you're ready for the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then last question is, what is the greatest lesson in leadership that you've learned? The, the thing I, I've probably learned that it's uh, that leadership is not about um, visibility. I think too often we equate leaders and leadership with people that we know and see. And so I, I think all of us, uh, as far as, as being leaders, truly are leading and ought to be leading somebody uh, whether that's discipleship, whether that's our kids, whoever it is. And so I think that uh, too often, I think we separate leadership into this just great, you know, the big people that we all know and hear and see leading great organizations or churches or whatever it is, when when I think leadership really happens most often and most effectively on a much, much smaller, invisible place. Yeah, that's good. All right. Is there anything that we can be praying for for you and your family? I think as as we go on this journey, that God would continue to um, keep us hungry for Him, uh, and uh, you know we have boys eighteen, sixteen, and thirteen. So there's there's lots of uh, you know we we truly the thing that we have to trust most to God, I think, in this life is is their faith, and so you know we pray diligently for it, but I would ask for everyone's prayers in that, and you know we should be praying for each other's children. Because it's a, it's a world that is, is trying to woo them away from the goodness of God. That's true. Yeah. All right. Let's pray now. God, I thank you and praise you for Michael and for his family. I pray that you would uh, protect his kids uh, from the things of this world, that uh, they would 
uh, trust in you, rely on you, and pursue you with their lives. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for all of us uh, listening to this that we would uh, we would depend on you. Uh, we wouldn't depend on our own abilities or the things of this world, but we would truly depend on you and know that you are our ultimate provider. God, I thank you and praise you for this episode. I pray that you would help us to uh, use what we've learned here to invest in your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast. And thank you guys for listening to another episode. We'll catch you next time. What if you could take your generosity to the next level, impacting more lives in your community and around the world, creating a godly legacy for generations to come? Now you can. Your first step is crafting your kingdom investing thesis. Reserve your spot in our next online workshop where we guide you through the process of discovering your passions, create a strategic plan, and connect you to opportunities that will help you fulfill your God-given calling as a kingdom investor. Register today by clicking the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kingdom Investor Podcast.